All right, as we begin this morning, we're going to be looking this, this morning and probably the next, for about three weeks, uh, we'll be looking at the next three times we meet or a couple of times we meet, we'll be looking at a passion for purity. And this is a, a, a big part of the, uh, the topic that I want to cover when, it, when we're talking about leadership and leading well in our homes, being godly men who lead well. You know, we live in a culture that's daily becoming more and more fascinated with sexual immorality. Since the 1960s, our country has seen a massive shift in the area of sexuality. Things that were once never to be spoken of in public are now commonplace on television and in mainstream media. The, as you know, the invention of the Internet, while it's brought many helpful things, has also come with many temptations and many harmful things that have harmed many families and made things like pornography uh, worldwide industries uh, that ruin families and ruin men's lives. Now it's so prevalent that even misspelling a word in a, wor- in a Google search can land you in places that you never intended to be. If we take TV commercials at face value, we'd be convinced that there's no product on earth that can't be sold by sex and sexual in- innuendo. Everything from bubble gum to deodorant uh, to shampoo has been pushed with sexual innuendo. It seems to be wrapped into almost every type of market. And sadly, in, in recent years, the, the further push for sexual liberation has gone well beyond the sin of fornication and now includes things like adultery and homosexuality. And even in, in California, laws on pedophilia are being dumbed down as we speak. You know, there are even organizations I've seen that specialize in creating opportunities for married people to meet, to have secret affairs. And this is the world that we live in, and unless the Lord intervenes, things are not moving in an upward trend, they're moving further downward. So I want to talk together for a moment, I want you to talk with me about what are some of the dangers as Christian men that we have to be on guard against in a culture that's as highly sexualized as ours is. What are some of the dangers specifically? Obviously, there's the danger of, of the actual temptations to be involved with that. But I mean, even more broadly, what are some of the things we have to be on, on guard against? Lowering your guard, thinking that it's not as bad as it seems. Yeah, yeah. Being really desensitized <laughs> to, to, to it because it's just constant. Good, what else? It's it really complicated on how we... How and when we talk with our kids about these things, because even driving down 35 and downtown Dallas, they see things that you know you don't necessarily want them to see. And at what point do you get ahead of it and have the right conversations with them and talk about God's design versus preserving their innocence and allowing that to maybe carry on? Mm-hmm. You probably like it to carry on for a lot longer than it needs to because you want to you want to have that conversation with them before they hear it from someone else and. Then you have to think about at the park or other places that you, you wouldn't even wouldn't even be on your radar. You know, if some some kid's got a phone, then all mm-hmm. of a sudden you've got to now think about things that you know your kids seeing things that you never would have seen when you were their age. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. It's pushed. I think I think we can all safely say it's pushed that age younger than it's certainly in the last decade. I think maybe every every five years or so, it seems to push that age younger where our kids are exposed. Whether you homeschool or don't school, it doesn't matter. They they can be easily exposed to things. 
What else? What are some other things we have to be on guard against? Interaction with uh, women in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Do you pray for a a workmate woman that's with with or by yourself? Do you go for lunch with her? You know, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, Being on guard against those things, yeah. Being careful, yeah. What else? What are some other things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, being careful with what we watch and listen to and not allowing that standard to slide as the cultural standard slides, right? One of the passages that always impressed me was, uh, I think it's Thessalonians. <laughs> Those are both great <laughs> books. To possess our own vessel, know how to possess our own vessel. Mm-hmm. We don't fall into a passion of lust. Nothing we underestimate our minds. It's first Thessalonians four. Yeah. It's first Thessalonians four. We're gonna that's the passage we're gonna look at this morning. <laughs> uh, so I was thinking and kind of back to this thing in your initial, just the way the world is looking at it. I mean you look at a good example is is you know, our vice president, Mike Pitts. I mean people continually make fun of him because he's made this stance of I'll never be in love with a woman, you know, and they just, the world is just completely, you know, right. they make spoofs on him and make fun of him, so I think, you know, from a fear of man standpoint, not giving into that as well. Right. Be in, you know, temptation as well. Which is interesting because even as, as recently as, as Bill Clinton with, with his sexual issues, yeah. even though he was a Democrat and things at that time, still pretty much universal, that was seen as a bad thing. The country saw that as a bad thing. And that's that's pretty much flipped around, you know. One thing I was told before is um, helped me out was even before walking into a, like a grocery store or anywhere, like so you're going to the mall because you know there's times that some girls be wearing certain things that aren't for us that we just see. Mm-hmm. It's just even before we walk in um, and have that prayer, and I don't do it enough where I'm praying before I go in, like Lord guard my eyes that I can just turn and not see. I mean, even for me at the airport sometimes, it's, it's mm-hmm. hard yeah. to just be walking down and not just turn my direction because my coworkers like, oh man, we're, they go up and walk through the terminal and like, we're going to have our little our little walk and they just are just but they're worldly and like we're going to go check out these ladies and stuff. Um, but to just not be a part of that and even think about that. But before you walk into a situation, just to have your mind in the right set. Mm-hmm. Especially even when, you, I'd say the grocery store is when you um, come up to the register, um, there's mm-hmm. all those magazines, just intentionally turn your head and not look that way, just keep your head straight. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are good. We're going to talk through some of the uh, some of those kind of practical things as well as we get into this, but I was I was thinking those are all really good. I thought of a couple of others that we have to things we have to be on guard against, like judging our holiness by the world rather than God's character. Because if you get in the habit of looking at where others are and where you are, and that scale is sliding constantly, it means you're sliding constantly. Whereas the character of God is the standard for us, and it never changes; and it's static. We have to be careful of that. Uh, blaming our sinful choices on the culture, you know, I just can't help it. I mean, how how can a, someone be pure in a culture like this? You know, certainly you can't expect us never to look at things, 
um, becoming judgmental of God's standards because of cultural opinions. Or you'll see, I've seen Christians, or at least professing Christians that I've known in my own life who's, who have gone from holding one standard and then as things have, have begun to slide in the culture, particularly on things like homosexuality and things like that, now they've changed their tune and they want to adopt those things and see it as too, too rigid of, a, of an interpretation of the Bible to see that as sin, things like that. Um, you know, we things like failing to teach about sexual sin in the church, just pretending that it's not there and not addressing it, that's a problem. Um, failing to confront sexual sin in the church through things like church discipline. Uh, church discipline is a, is a help in that regard because it reminds us all that we're, we're accountable to the standard of God's, God's word and God's character. And then another danger that we've seen is the church trying to Christianize worldly views of sexuality. Um, we see this in a couple of ways. One is, is just churches using sex to sell books and to sell sermon series and things like that. Um, even recently, you know, Ed Young Jr. did the whole 24-hour bed-in thing where they put a bed on top of their church and live-streamed him and his wife answering questions about sex from the bed on top of their church. Um, uh, that, the, this is the church adopting, trying to jump on the bandwagon of the sexual climate and use that to be relevant, quote-unquote. Uh, we have to be very careful about these things because it's not only despicable to do that, but it's dangerous because it, it misses the fact that many people are trapped and caught in the grips of sexual sin, and it's not something to be played with. If you, if you doubt that, let me just give you some statistics. This is from 2016, so this is an older study by the, the Barna Group where they they conducted a, a survey... <clears throat> On pornography, and so they're, when I say a person uses pornography, they're, they're saying if a person uses pornography one to two times per month, they're calling that as using pornography. It says in their survey, males that were unchurched, so unbelievers, ages 13 to 24, 72% said yes, they use pornography at least one to two times a month. Ages 25 and up was 55%. Males that, are, that consider themselves to be practicing Christians. Now, I think, caveat, I think they add into that things like Catholics and maybe even Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. So this is not exactly, this may be skewed, but males at least that self-proclaim to be practicing Christians, ages 13 to 24, 41% use pornography one to two times a month, and 25 and older, 23%. So thankfully lower than the unchurched, but still far too high. Females that are unchurched, ages 13 to 24, 36% said they use pornography one to two times a month, 25 and older, 17%. And then females that were practicing Christians, ages 13 to 24, 13%, 25 and older, 5%. So a couple of things from that, those statistics. One, thankfully, Christians use pornography far less than non-Christians, which we should assume that should be the case. But on the flip side, far too many Christians, even if these are skewed and we cut them in half, far too many Christians are still regularly accessing pornography um, as a part of their life. So in a world like ours, we can understand the psalmist's question in Psalm 119.9 where he says, how can a young man keep his way pure? But thankfully, he answers the question by keeping it according to your word. And so that's where I want us to focus our time this morning and over the next few weeks is looking at what does the Bible say about purity and sexuality. And we're going to look over the next 
few times we meet at four aspects of purity. This morning we'll look at the command for purity. And then next time we'll look at the standard for purity. Thirdly, we're going to look at the battle for purity, some of those practical things of how do we actually fight. And then fourthly, walking in purity. What what does a holy life look like? So the command for purity, the standard for purity, the battle for purity, and then walking in purity. And I think you understand why I'm spending so much time on this topic. It's because, A, we're, we're, we're all men and we live in this world and this is a, a common issue. I'd say it's the most common issue that I deal with with men one-on-one in counseling is issues with sexual sin. And so I'd much rather handle it at this level, either before it becomes an issue or even now for you to be able to deal with these things and put them to death so that we can be walking in purity. So let's look at the, com- <clears throat> the command for purity, and we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. This is the text that uh, Preston referenced earlier. There are a lot of texts that we could choose, but this is the one that sort of always comes to mind when I think about God's command in the area of sexuality, because it's so clear. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in honor and sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. Now, he begins in verse, uh, early on, I think it's in verse 2. He says, for, for you know what commands... Uh, actually, no, it begins in verse 1. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from instruction from us... And then he says, just as you actually do walk. He says, this is how you ought to walk, just as you actually do walk. So... That clues us into the fact that we're talking about believers here in context. He's talking to Christians in the church about how they should carry themselves. And and he says, it's not that you're not doing any of these things. And sometimes I think maybe we get comfortable with where we're at in our sanctification, with any area of sanctification. And, And this is why this is helpful is because he says, I'm not saying you're not doing any of this, but at the end of verse 1 he says that you excel still more. That's the idea, that you don't stop, that you don't grow content with where you're at in your sanctification, but you continue pushing forward. And so even if if you're here this morning and you're a mature believer and and you're fighting and winning the battle when it comes to purity or any other thing, um, none of us have reached perfection. We've not reached the final goal. And so all of us can heed Paul's instruction to excel still more. Wherever you're at in your walk with the Lord, intentionally choose to push forward to be more and more conformed to His will. And he says in, in verse 3, for this is the will of God. People always want to know, what's God's will for my life? 
Well, here it is. He's going to tell you. This is God's will for you. For this is God's, the will of God, your sanctification. You can always trust that no matter what situation you're in, God's will for you in that is your sanctification. That you would be progressively made more and more holy. And, and, and that actually is a really helpful principle to keep in mind when you walk through trials in the best times of life and the worst of times and everything in between. God's will is always your sanctification, that you would be made more holy. MacArthur defines sanctification as the process of being separated from sin and set apart to God's holiness. <clears throat> this is always God's ultimate end for us in everything that happens in our daily lives. Now, the question is how, especially in context, what does Paul mean when he says that the will of God is our sanctification? And this brings us directly to the topic that that we're discussing. That is, verse 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. In other words, what I mean by that, what I'm referring to, is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul's going to actually outline three different areas of, of our sanctification that all have to do with purity in this text. And the first one, we'll talk about it in detail in just a moment, but the first one is that we abstain from sexual morality. Now, in context, we may be wondering, why is Paul spending so much time on this particular issue? Because sanctification, of course, deals with every issue of our life. He could have camped out on pride or, or selfishness or any other area that we need to work on. So why sexual immorality? Well, the issue is because Thessalonica was a culture much like the culture we've described of our own day, only even worse in some regards. Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia and was part of the Roman Empire. And if you know anything about Rome and what the sexual culture was, it was, it was a very sexualized culture. Uh, homosexuality was a part of the culture. Fornication, obviously, part of the culture and other sexual sins. And part of the issue is, is many of the false religions of that day included sexual immorality as part of the way they worshipped their false gods. Prostitution was a part of their idolatry. And so you can imagine what that creates when you have these big temples full of cult prostitutes um, it, it creates a very sexualized culture and an easy way to rationalize sexual morality because according to the culture, it's, it's an act of worship even. And so this would have been a, a, a normalized even to a different degree in some ways than what we see here. So Paul knows that these Thessalonian Christians are being saved out of that kind of environment. And so he deals with specifically being sanctified in the area of sexual morality. And it just so happens that we also live in an increasingly sexualized culture, and so it's very helpful for us. Now, as I said, he mentions these three different areas. The first one is kind of a broad category, that you abstain from sexual immorality is the first thing he says. The first area of sanctification is simply abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia, which is a word you're probably familiar with. It's also the word we get our word pornography from. It's built off of that Greek word porneia. And it was used of all kinds of sexual sin, depending on the context. In some contexts, you can tell that it's, it's more strict in dealing with a certain kind of sexual sin, but the word in and of itself is very broad. And I think in this context, it's meant to be taken very broadly. All forms of sexual morality are included in this word. 
um, it would deal with our thoughts, with our eyes, and certainly with, with physical action. Anything involved in our speech, anything involved in sexual morality is here in this word. And the simple instruction is abstain from sexual morality. It's, it's really cut and dry. Abstain. Don't, don't dabble in it. Don't pursue it. But absolutely cut it off. It's to have no part in the Christian life. And I think that's helpful for us. It's, we don't need to go near the door. We don't need to toe the line. He simply says, abstain from sexual immorality. That's the will of God for your life in the area of sexuality, is that you abstain from any form of immorality. Secondly, he goes on to say that, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel. It's getting more specific now. And there's been some debate over what the word vessel refers to. I think it's actually really clear. But some have tried to make the argument that vessel here refers to uh, your wife. And he's encouraging us to all have wives to fight against sexual immorality. I don't, while I think that is a help to have a wife, certainly I don't think that's the point at all of what he's saying. I think it's pretty clear in context when he says each of you know how to possess your own vessel. He's talking about our bodies, our physical bodies, that we know how to possess our physical bodies. Possess means exactly what you would assume. It means to gain control over. That we are to control ourselves, to have self-control, as Galatians 5 says, is one of the the, fruits of the Spirit. Self-control. And the Christian, then, is to be one who's known for maintaining full control of his body, including thoughts and, and eyes. And he says, his own, that each of you know how to possess his own Vessel. Each of us have the individual responsibility to control ourselves. We can't control the people around us. We can't control the, the women around us or the world around us or any, what anyone else does. And God doesn't call you to. He says that each one know how to possess his own body. God holds you responsible for you and you alone. What this means, though, is that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can control our physical bodies. I think that's really, really important for us to understand. We can and should and must control our bodies by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, in sanctification, in honor. The way that we should possess our bodies is in sanctification and honor. Sanctification, of course, as we've already said, is the pursuit of holiness. Sanctification can also be used in a positional sense of being set apart as holy. And so... Really, either idea would work here. Of possessing our bodies in holiness is the idea, and honor to live in a respectable way. Even if the culture now has has changed its opinion of what's respectable and not respectable, um, the scriptures are clear as what what is a an honorable way to hand to handle your body in the area of sexual purity. Then he goes on to give an illustration of what not to do on the negative front. He says, not in lustful passion. Not in lustful passion. That is an, an uncontrolled, unhindered expression of sexual immorality. That we're, we're not to just let our passions run free. It's to be driven by your impulses. Like, like, like Tim talked about at work with some, some of these guys. And, and I think for the unbeliever, that's exactly how they live. They're driven by impulse. And so an attractive woman walks by. 
they look and, and gain all that they can gain sexually from that. Either opportunity arises, they take it. So it, it is that, that idea of, of living in, by, by being driven by lustful passion. But for the believer, Paul says, no, we're to be driven by the Holy Spirit, by the truth of the Scriptures, not by our passions. He says that, that this being driven by lustful passion, he compares that to the way the, the unbelievers live, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Gentiles here is just a, a word for unbeliever. Don't be driven like those who, who are unsaved, who live dominated by their passions and their urges and sexual desires. Of course they're driven by those things. And, and before Christ, perhaps that was you being driven by those things. It, 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 in fact, it was, all of us, before we came to know Christ. We were driven by those things. But for the unbeliever, this is important, for the unbeliever, purity is not an option. They can't be pure. They are bound to sin, they're dead in their sins, and they're, they're going to act like unbelievers act. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be surprised that when, when, when a tool that can be helpful is created, like the internet or billboards or anything else, that sinful man is going to find a way to use that to feed his own lust. We shouldn't be surprised by that. That's what they're going to do because they're bound to their sin. But for us as believers... We are called to control ourselves. And I want to go back to that point that I touched on just a moment ago. This means that we can control ourselves. This is, this is something I deal with in, in counseling somewhat frequently, is men who have been caught in a sexual sin and a pattern of it for so long that they, they come into my office just defeated, and they have clearly resigned themselves to the fact that I'm just never going to win this. I'm never going to win this. You know, I'm, maybe I'll get better, but, you know, it's, it's never going to go away. I'm never going to be able to defeat this sexual sin problem I have. And, and what I want to say is, A, that's just patently untrue. But how offensive is that to the Holy Spirit, right? When, when, when God says that He saved us for the purpose of good deeds that He prepared beforehand that we would walk in them, and that, that we are new creatures... That the old is gone, new has come, and that He's given us and sealed us with the Holy Spirit, and we that true believers have the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which includes self-control. What are we saying about the the Spirit's ability to work in our life when we say, "I'm just never going to get over it. I'm just always going to be, you know, once a month or once every few months or one couple times a year. I'm going to look at pornography. I mean, I can't be perfect." That kind of mentality is an unbiblical mentality that shortchanges the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is still in the Bible. No temptation. No temptation. It's very, very inclusive. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. So, first of all, all of us deal with the same types of temptations. It is true that each of us are given to to be more drawn to certain sins than others. That is very true. But all of us deal with the same kinds of temptations. These are common. They've been common since the fall. right? So, so get it out of your mind that you're somehow in this unique category that while other Christians gain victory, you just can't. Because they, if they just understood how hard it is for you, then they would understand. That's not a biblical way of thinking. This is common to man, and God is faithful. God is faithful. And what that faithfulness looks like 
is he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And we can understand that to be able with the power of the Holy Spirit operating in our lives. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Guys, this is such a helpful verse. It's one that you may have memorized, but maybe haven't taken to heart in the fullness of what God is saying. What that means is there there really is, is no excuse. It's removed from us. And that when we give in to sin, it's not because God failed us in any way. It's not because it was just too tempting and it just couldn't be resisted. It's because you chose, you made some decisions to, and that made it possible to give in to that sin. Sometimes I'll talk about it this way. You planned to fail, right? And, and, and that happens all the time. And what happens is, is we try to trick ourselves into even thinking that we're kind of fighting against it. But what we're really doing is, is keeping it there in our minds and playing with it just enough and toying with it just enough until we give in to it instead of killing it and putting it to death and setting up uh, fences to keep ourselves from getting to it. So just if, if you've struggled with that sense of, man, I'm just never going to get over this, remove that from your mind. It's an unbiblical thought. And the power of the Holy Spirit, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to help us gain victory over sexual sin. Now notice he doesn't say you'll reach a place where you're not tempted. He says no temptation is beyond God's ability to, to help you. So you're going to be tempted, but you don't have to fall into that sin. So I, I want you to, to, to sort of soak on the implications of that idea. But throughout your day, when things are presented to you, remembering, I don't, I don't have to give in to that. I have a choice. I have the ability by God's grace to walk according to the Spirit, renewing my mind, with the truth of God's word. That even means our eyes, even a glance, um, can be avoided by God's power and should be. That's the way we should be thinking about these things. Now, the third area of sexual morality that he mentions here, he says uh, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. That no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Now, what's, what's he talking about? Well, clearly, in context, we're still talking about sexual sin. So when he talks about transgressing, he means to go beyond the proper limits of behavior in, in the area of sexual, sexuality. And this reminds us that sexual sin is not just a personal sin that I commit, but it involves another person. Even when you're not physically involved with that person, it involves another person. If you're thinking about them or looking at them, it involves another person. You may not even know the person, but it involves the person. And he says, let no man transgress or sin against or defraud. Defraud means to take advantage of. That includes, like I said, looking with lust. When you use the body of another person to feed your own personal sexual desires, you are defrauding that person. You're using them for your own good. It's for your own bad, but for your own desires, right? Um, And so I think there is this sense in which, certainly for unbelievers, and what often happens is it becomes such a pattern for an unbeliever that when they become a believer, they really struggle to break the pattern, but they've gotten in such a habit of, Look, don't touch, right? It's fine. I didn't, I didn't hurt anybody, right? I didn't hurt anybody by looking at that or dwelling on that. That's not true biblically. 
It's still a matter of defrauding that person when we choose to use them for our own sexual gain or pleasure. Certainly it would include a physical act, but it goes beyond that even to our mental thoughts. Now, here's the big issue with this. He goes on to say, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. The Lord is the avenger in all these things. What it means is when you sin against somebody else, and specifically here he says his, don't defraud a brother, so he's talking about sinning against another believer specifically. When you do that, it's an offense to a holy God. And God is the avenger in these things. The Bible's clear that, that God is a loving Father who disciplines His children, the children that He loves. And so, so don't get in this mindset that, well, I'm, I'm saved, I'm justified, and so, hey, God will forgive me. That's Romans 6, right? Where He says, should we go on sinning since that grace may increase? What does He say? May it never be. May it never be. Um, the, and, and God will not hold us guiltless in that sense. Now, it is true our sins as far as our, our eternal state with God are forgiven. They're done. The courtroom decision's made. It's never to be brought up again. That's what justified means. We are declared righteous. But as a loving father, God will discipline us when we sin against him. Just in the same way that my children, when they, when they sin against me and disobey, they will never stop being my children. No matter what they do, no matter how heinous of their sin is against me, they will always be my children. But their sin can put distance between us and our relationship. And so I must discipline them to bring them back into a close relationship with me. Same, God does the same thing for his children. He will not allow us. Part of the idea of the, the preservation of the saints is God will not allow you, if you're a true believer, to get to the point that you deny the faith ultimately. And that may, even if he has to take your life before that happens, he will do that. But God will discipline those He loves. He's a good Father. If we as sinful fathers love our children enough to discipline them, how much more will God discipline those whom He loves? God is the avenger in all these things. What are some of the things that might happen? Well, MacArthur gives some examples and when this idea of disciplining His children, particularly in the area of sexual sin. He said it could result in a strained or destroyed marriage. In some cases, disease, a divorce, Estrangement from children. You, you see, God does not withhold, certainly, the natural consequences of our sin. And, and I've seen guys who have, who have repented and they've come out of, of sin and, and they're renewed with the Lord, but they have so destroyed their marriage and, and the, their relationship with their kids because of their years of, of sexual sin that they, they cannot get it back. It's, it's, that, is, that is done. Um, they're right with the Lord. And there may be even forgiveness extended, but they have so damaged those relationships, they won't be the same. So that's, those are some of the examples that MacArthur gives of, of how <clears throat> the Lord may discipline us. Of course, we know from 1 Corinthians, even with the Lord's table, that he said that people were sinning and God, some had gotten sick and even died because of their sin. And God disciplined them in that way. We know that is a potential. And here's the reason God takes this so seriously. Back to the text, he says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. When he says God has not called us, he means called us to himself. He's not saved you 
for the purpose of impurity, of continuing in, in sexual sin, but he's called us in holiness and sanctification. And guys, this is such an important truth for us to hold on to. I think we know this, but let's just remind ourselves that God did not save us simply to forgive us, but to make us holy. That was always his intention. Is not just for us to be forgiven, but to be conformed to him. Remember Ephesians 2. He says that we've been saved by grace through faith. He goes on to say, not as a result of works that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Or think about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, Christians, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You see what he's saying? He's saying, yes, you used to be caught up in some of these things, but now that you've come to Christ, no longer are you to be caught up in those things. You were washed, you were sanctified, set apart as holy, justified by the Lord. He goes on in that same chapter later, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 18, he begins with this command, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So not only has God saved us and called us to good works, but he goes further there to say, look, beyond that, you don't own yourself. God does. He bought you. He paid for you with the blood of his own son. Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your body. Now he finishes with these sobering words. He says, So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Verse 8. He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. If these commands seem over the top, if you're ever tempted to think that Paul is being just a little bit too strict here, this verse removes any idea of that because if you reject this, you're not rejecting Paul, you're not rejecting me, you're rejecting God Himself. These are the words of God. And if you reject this command of excelling still more, pursuing sanctification through purity, then you're rejecting the very instruction of God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. I love that last phrase. He, adds, he just kind of tags it on at the end, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What a gift. We could spend a month just talking about the gift that it is that we have the Holy Spirit. That's why any of this is possible. God's not commanding this and, and then giving us no resources to, to obey. He's commanding this while giving us his Holy Spirit to walk alongside us through the Word of God so that we can actually do these things, not in perfection, but in the direction of our lives, and our lives can be characterized by these truths. This should be very sobering for us this morning. And so let me just ask you, as we think about this, what is your standard for purity? How do you think about purity in your own personal life? 
We're going to talk next time about God's standard and walk through some of the details of that. But I wanted to start with this. What is, and I want you just to think about it. What are, you, what are your standards? Have you thought through specific standards? And the things that you'll think about, the, the entertainment that you'll participate in, the, the internet activity that you'll be involved with, the things that you read, what you do with your eyes, how you think, the jokes that you're willing to make or laugh at. Think about those things. I hope that you've already grown to a place in your spiritual walk where you're intentional about sexual sin and fighting sexual sin. But the truth is, even if that is the case, if you're mature in this area, uh, none of us take these sins as seriously as God does. None of us see them as offensive as He really does. And so there's room to grow. There's room for each of us to make sure that our standard increasingly aligns with the standard of God that God has given us. So, this week, I want you to do a couple of things. First of all, I want you to spend some time today and this week going forward evaluating your own life in the area of sexual sin. We never reach an age or a stage in life where this isn't important. And I want you to answer the question, This question, based on how I'm currently living in regards to sexuality, do I take God's command for purity seriously? Based on how I'm currently living in regards to sexuality, can I honestly say that I take God's command for purity seriously? I think it's it's helpful for us to, to do that regularly. And then secondly... I, uh, I've allowed us a couple of minutes. I've, I've finished a few minutes early on purpose this morning because I want us to do something different. I want us to break up into groups of three or four, two, two to four, and, and just pray together. Pray for one another um, in the area of sexuality. This, we, we have a real enemy. Um, we, have, we live in a world, as you've already said, that's full of sexual morality. And it's my prayer that, that for myself and for us as men at, at North Lake Bible Church that we will be men characterized by purity and men that are fighting for purity. And this is essential to godly leadership. If we want to lead our wives well and our kids well and be leaders in the church, we have to be men who take purity very seriously. And so that's going to require God's help, which means it's going to require us to pray. So why don't we take a few moments, just break up wherever you want to, and let's pray specifically that God would help us in this area.